Welcome to the Being Human UTU podcast, where Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hindigas will discuss issues relative to the humanities and technology at Utah Tech University. And now your hosts for Being Human UTU podcast, Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hindigas. Hello, this is Dr. Randy Jasmine. I'm joined with my uh, joined by my colleague, Dr. Jim Hendigas. We'd like to welcome you to our second podcast. The name of the podcast has changed. After a little thinking and soul searching, we've decided that the name of our podcast going forward is going to be Being Human in the Age of Technology, the Saga of Utah Tech University. So yeah, Randy... The theme for this podcast and probably the podcast further on is going to be name changes. And uh, we have another change that happened that's fairly significant, which is the institution that we belong to. Uh, it went through the legislation. And it, has it been signed yet by the, the governor? Yes, the Governor con- Cox signed it last Friday. Governor, governor Cox signed um, into law that, that we're going to be Utah Tech University from Dixie State University. So that's a pretty significant change. And that touches upon what we're talking about in this podcast. So um, we invited Dr. John Wolf here. He did a convocation address in August, the academic convocation. And so, hey, John, what did you talk about in this convocation? <laughs> Well, uh, talked about a lot of things. And by the way, thank you guys for giving me the chance to come and talk. I always love talking about the humanities, philosophy, and how it applies to various other disciplines. And and so I think the, the things that I talked about in, in, in my larger convocation discussion ranged quite a bit. It, it ranged from discussing about how uh, technology relates to the humanities, how humanities is... Has, seems to have a fear behind it. A lot of people who are tied to the humanities have a fear, and I saw this when I started talking to my students the day after the, the class after the vote for the name change happened. There were two general questions. The first question was, how much is this going to cost? <laughs> Which I find interesting. And that is a, a valuable question to have. How much is this going to cost the university and the community? But the second question I had from a student was, aren't you afraid as a philosopher about this change to the humanity, or change from to from Dixie to Utah Tech, and and without skipping a beat, I said no. And they said, "Why not? Because aren't we moving to engineering? Aren't we moving to technology-centered things?" And my reply was, "Yes, but just because something is going to be technology-focused doesn't mean that the humanities don't have a seat at the table." And that was a large portion of the discussion was that when we look at employers associated with technology, when we look at the goods of technology there must be an element of the human condition tied to that discussion. And and so that was a general point or value that was associated with the talk. Um, another point was how that in order for us to have any sort of conversation about technology or humanities, there needed to be an acknowledgement of the human element of the university. And by that I mean we needed to be aware of the human element in our professors and our administration in the larger community as a whole. And if we are not caring for our larger community as a whole at a human level, we're not going to succeed at our goals as a university, especially technology focused university. So while we need to look at technology and humanities, there needs to be an underlying approach to discussing the, the human element of the process of doing work 
in the process of doing technology and how that applies to a variety of questions from how do we handle um, the energy our students have as non-traditional, as first-generation, as vulnerable students, how do we handle them and their energy at a personal level, and how do we handle the energy level, commitment level, engagement level of our faculty and our staff and our administration as well. Because if we aren't caring for ourselves as humans, we're going to be treated as cogs and we're going to inevitably burn out. So those were two real major facets. We're looking at the intersection between humanities and technology and also the underlying element that the human conversation or humanness must be at the forefront of any university conversation as we move forward. So that was essentially the nuts and bolts or the cogs in the machine, depending on how you want to roll that. Thank you for that summary. Well, okay, going along with that, you said in your talk that you call for an integrated, comprehensive understanding of all of our disciplines. Um, so what do you see are the obstacles for having an integrated, comprehensive understanding? And what, what, what stands in the way of us sort of approaching the humanities and technologies on the same plane? on our campus? That's a good question. I think there's really two different elements. First, uh, you have a systemic problem. And by systemic problem, I mean you have a classic way of approaching our work and a classic way of approaching how we present ourselves to students. So I think of, I'm going to use a lot of faculty terms here, so I apologize. When we think about describing our work obligation, we describe it often in terms of the hours that we teach students. So for the most part, tenured faculty or tenure track faculty here at DSU are on what's a 4-4 load. That means we are expected to teach four classes with one class expected for um, service or research. Um, when we think about that, the problem is that when I think about the problems that a lot of students encounter, they don't fit into nice, tight silos. They don't fit into just philosophy. They don't just fit into English, or they don't just fit into engineering, or they don't just fit into medicine. They fit into a larger scale. And, and I'll give an example from an email I received from a student who is teaching dance at schools in North Carolina. That in the process of trying to teach these students dance, one of the things that she encountered was getting buy-in from other teachers. It wasn't just about her skill as a teacher. It was about the social aspect, right? And so when I think about ethical issues, ethical issues are tied to politics. They're tied to familial obligations. They're tied to uh, desires and goals that we have as professionals. That when we look at the problems that we see, uh, you know, you could look at governmental problems, you could look at social problems, all of those things. They're what we call in my business a wicked problem. Not that they're inherently evil, but rather that they are complicated. And so what students want are solutions to complicated problems. And that's not something that just a single discipline responds to. And so we have a system that is traditionally siloed. You have to take an English class, you have to take a philosophy class, you have to take a biology class, all of those things. But we don't spend the time to explain to students how those things are interconnected. So they could say something like medicine. You have a student who's preparing to become a nurse or preparing to be a doctor. And they don't necessarily think about the psychological impact that profession is going to have on them until somebody says, hey, you know that doctors have twice the self-harm rate of what normal people do, don't you? And, and they're like, no, I didn't know that. And so when we think about 
our lives, our goals, our professional goals, our personal goals, etc., those are not single silo things. But we teach and we expect our teachers to work within these silos. So again, think of GE. GE, you have to have a humanities class. You have to have a biology class. That doesn't show you how those things interrelate. And so I think one of the problems is systemic, which is the system is inherently flawed. The system does not allow for really easy cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary, or transdisciplinary conversations. It's, this is biology. This is chemistry. This is business. When in the real world, biology, if you're looking for grants, that's a political game. That's a grant writing game, right? And so it becomes a writing skills discussion. And, and so I think that that's one of the issues, is that there's a, a system of silos built into university life that inherently prohibits cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary humanism and technology from, from cross-pollinating because it's, it's, not a biology ten, it's not a biology and ethics class at a 1010 level. It's a biology class or it's an ethics class. That's what we run into. So one, I think it's a systemic problem. Two, I think that it's also, I think that there's, there's cultural elements and personal elements that students and, to be honest, colleagues and professors, not trying to throw shade on anybody, don't necessarily think about their problems as inherently cross-disciplinary. So, you know, I'm lucky enough to be in a discipline that is by its nature cross-disciplinary. I've heard philosophy described as the mortar that holds the liberal arts together, and I will, I love that description. But we don't think of, of biology as needing a humanist component until we realize we have to convince people to get vaccinations, that medicine is political, medicine is social, that writing requires elements of, you know, so I'll use digital humanities as an example, you know, writing and expressing ourselves requires a relationship with technology. And so I, I think of the work that we're doing right now and looking at that soundboard with utter fear because I have no earthly idea how to use it. But to be a good professor of English, you need to have an understanding of that sort of technology. So our problems are, inher- are inherently transdisciplinary. But our education system is not. And the way that we approach teaching our classes, taking our classes, so both a systemic and personal level, we don't connect the dots. To paraphrase Pee Wee Herman, la 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 la. We don't connect the dots, at least in our education. It's only whenever we get out into the job world that we have bills to pay, mouths to feed, there ain't nothing in the world for free. And we start seeing those connections if we're lucky. So I think it's a systemic issue. I think it's also a personal issue when it comes to seeing that integration take root. One, and when I hear that, I, I think about expectations, you know, combining both the systemic and the cultural. Um, I, you know, I see that as, a, that as a teacher. I see that with my students. I see that, I'm not throwing shade on anybody, but I see that sort of administratively and within staff that it's, hey, we need to, this well-oiled machine. We don't want to stop the classroom you know, to talk about life, we just need to get all the information to the student. And so when you stop and you say, well, this is how my, your philosophy course is going to relate to these other disciplines, some students, I mean, I've encountered this in English, some students will see it as, hey, you know, I'm just, just stick to what this class is about. 
this class is about nouns and verbs. It's not about living life. I'll live the real world after I graduate. Here, I just need to check a box. And, and I see that already as, as an issue that's an expectation is that, you know, if you even go outside of that silo, you're not in your lane. And, and that can be problematic. Yeah, and, and John, you're you're echoing some of the things that you said in the in the convocation in August, and I just you know my observation, and I guess it, it could be a question to you as well is, do you think that the you talked about the four four workload? Do you think that you know at an institution like ours where we do teach a lot and we do have a lot of students, does that hinder us a little bit too in terms of Having the time to collaborate, having the the, uh, the 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 system in place that makes a collaboration easy, you know, sometimes people just for their own sanity say, "I just need to put my head down and get my classes taught and get my assignments graded." And that, you know, with a four four load, that's a that's a pretty tall order. So, do you think the nature of our teaching institution? is a bit of a hindrance as well. I do, and, and I'll, I'll abstract it even further to say it's not just being a teaching institution. I think that it's an inherent problem within the system of what university life is. So we can, you know, I would argue that, you know, you take something like the U or another research-focused institution, you take out one or two classes, you still have the same stress, pressure, and worry that's associated with it, but it's not about classes. It's about, uh, you know, it's about uh, commenter number two, right? Um and so I think that it's a problem within the university setting. And, and it's, if I was being fully transparent, I think that it's the inherent conflict between seeing the university as a business and seeing a university as a charity or as, a, um, as an educational system. And as a business, what we want is the most efficient workers. We want the most number of rear ends and seats. We want clear data about number of graduates we're getting and we want clear indication of profit, profitability, so to speak, in terms of growing elements. Um, I think that's present here. I think that's present at other institutions. I think that's an institution. I think that's a systemic problem when we think about what institutions are. If we think about them as a business, it's very easy to see the idea that we want cogs in the machine. On the other hand, if we see the idea that our job is to be a charity or our job is to be a school or teaching, then it becomes less about satisfying ours and more about looking at the goal of the whole person, right? And I think that there are, there's the possibility of that happening. But again, to, to address that, we have to radically rethink the way that we look at what being a professor is what obligations we have, and how do we make those obligations present to individuals who should hold us accountable for the amount of work and the type of work that we're doing. And listening to individuals after my talk approach me and discuss things like, wow, you know, I want to work with this, but I don't have time. That shows the problem in the system. Or, or I, I, I have all these students, and I, I just don't have the time to invest in them. And it's because I'm teaching four loads. If I'm honest, I'm teaching five classes or six classes. Uh, we have an environment and we have a culture that really focuses on um, 
the idea of it is expected, and we, you, we have a phrase for this, and I won't use that phrase. <laughs> we have a phrase for this in terms of you are fulfilling the spirit of what this area is by overworking. And so I think that what you described, which is to say, you know, in the 4-4 load, do we prevent ourselves from engaging students? Yes, but for many people, again, you guys can clarify the, the data here, but a significant majority of our faculty population isn't just teaching that four classes, they're teaching an overload. And so if we can't do it with four classes, we sure as hell can't do it with five or six that we're expecting. Sorry, we're going to PG-13. PG- well, you just opt it to explicit now. Yeah, okay, there we go. <laughs> no, you're but, fine. <laughs> but we can't do that. When we can't do that with with the kind of work that we're expecting, right? And so, again, I think it's a cultural idea. We have to drive, we have to kill this idea that in order to be a good colleague, you have to be expected to teach not just four classes, but five classes. In order to be a good teacher, you shouldn't have to take that overload, and maybe it's actually better for you as a department. So I'll use myself as a department, maybe, or my, because I'm the only philosopher here, maybe it's actually beneficial to give space to redesign, rethink, and integrate courses in an interdisciplinary way and have the space to do that. Um, you know, there, there's a dirty word that uh, is used at other institutions. It's rarely used here, and that dirty word is sabbatical that uh, might not just be tied to publication but be tied to revision and development of courses and curriculum. And if we gave, if 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 we weren't so desperate to make sure that we filled classes, and this is the catch-22, and I feel bad for administration for this, they know that there's a problem. But they also know that they have the demand for the classes, and it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. And and so, you know, we that's, that's the inevitability that everyone in this process at this institution are facing, they know that there's the issue. They know that their faculty and staff are overworked, but there's not the money and there's not the means to be able to correct that. And so we have to think, what are we doing? And that's a kind of depressing thing for people, but you know, I'm, I'm a philosopher. I'm used to being depressed. But well, well, <laughs> You said in the talk that you asked this question, do we have a culture that cultivates personal and emotional security? And uh, <laughs> do you think we do? No. No, not at all. Not at all. And, and again, I don't think that's just a DSU problem. I think that's an institutional problem, right? So if we, I'll give, I gave a talk earlier this year at a conference that addressed the question, who is teaching RGE classes? And if you look at trying to, and I'll use philosophy as an example. Philosophy is not like English or not like literature. Because for the most part, I walk into my first classes assuming students have never had a philosophy class before. Maybe they've done a little bit of reading of Nietzsche, or maybe they've done a little bit of reading of Plato, but they haven't had a philosophy class. So I have to brand, I have to bring students in. If I'm bringing students in who have never tasted the discipline, or never sampled, or never engaged the discipline before, then they won't necessarily. You want them to have the most positive experience. So they come back. You want that good experience. So they say, wow, philosophy actually matters to me. So I'm going to, I'll take another philosophy class or I'll take a, a world religions class because I see how these things begin to interconnect and apply to me as an English major or as a biology major or as a pre-med student that 
you want that really positive GE experience. But who teaches our GE classes? People who teach our GE classes are predominantly junior faculty. They're predominantly um, the artists formerly known as adjuncts. They are um, individuals who are essentially the most vulnerable members of our faculty and staff. And these are the people that are heavily, in certain cases, overworked. And so we're asking students to be introduced to a discipline, the depth of a discipline, at a general education level, and we are giving them the most vulnerable individuals to teach those courses. And so I I don't think that there's anything, I mean, I think that there are very few things besides the interactions that I have with individuals. So my relationship with Jim, my relationship with Randy, those are things that I see as positives, those those individual relationships. It's John. Well, I hope so. Hopefully hopefully it's a positive thing. Um, But I, I see a lot in the system that creates stress, that creates frustration, and, and does not allow for authentic community because, you know, it's, we're, set, we're worried about the number of students in chairs, we're worried about filling our classes, and we get to this point in the semester, and if I ask you all, how's your energy level doing? You know, I'm sure you would tell me, especially based on the amount of tea that you've consumed, and, <laughs> and, and diet, diet, pepper is still good enough, um, but, you know, you're, you're, we're, we're leaning on the caffeine pretty heavily, right? And that's not even taking into account things like search committees or other committee work or expectations in pre- preparation of research or publications that we're trying to do. We're tired, man. I feel, I feel like the student in the 9 a.m. class, dude, dude, I'm just so tired, dude. That's what, that's what we feel like, at least I do. And so when I, look at, when I look at individuals, when I look at individual deans, I see support, I see concern. But I don't see it in the system because, again, I think it goes back to we see our, the, there's a focus of the university as a business or as a means to generate and produce graduates rather than as, as a charity or educational experience. And I think that those are very different approaches. And I think, unfortunately, based on the way that we receive funding, based on the way that we um, prove our worth, we're kind of stuck in the business unless we do a radical reevaluation. But, no, I do not think that we have a system – of inherent support, either for students. We try. There's a trying effort there. But when I receive emails from students in my online classes that say, I've never had a professor in any of my online classes email me personally, which happens frequently, we have a problem. And so I think that it's a system problem. And and I I just, I don't want to belabor it, but when you brought up this idea of this sort of inherent burdens that we have in certain classes to justify either connect interdisciplinary elements or to also justify their worth. I mean, that can get exhausting. That can get the, you know, when, when you think, okay, well, like taking, you know, a genetics course, well, that's a no brainer. That's really worthwhile. But taking, you know, an ethics course, some students were like, I'm a good person. Why do I need to take this class? <laughs> and then that gets exhausting to justify the worth of what you're doing. Well, if I, if I can be a little bit of a skeptic here, I wonder how much of that is a self-generated problem. Like I talk to members of the biology faculty and I, I talk to other faculty members who are in, you know, most of the responses that I heard from faculty members about my talk were actually from the STEM fields. And they're like, yeah, I want to do this. I want to do these interdisciplinary things. We want to engage the humanities. So, and and I think that if we, show students how the work that we do applies to them on a regular basis. You know, I, 
we can look at the past year and a half, and the questions of systemic justice are evident. The questions of possible tyrannic behavior is evident, right? even in our own nation. right? And so the students see the problems. The problem is uh, that a lot of the structure that we have in how we teach does not connect the dots between those relevant things and what between those life-impacting things and what we're doing in the classroom. So, you know, if I teach, I'll, I'll, I'll give the example of Plato. If I just teach Plato, I can, I can use dialogues that are brilliant and talk about uh, teleological issues. They can talk about uh, virtue and all of that sort of thing. But I use the Republic because the Republic includes discussion about how leaders use mobs to manipulate and kill opponents. And that's, regardless of where you fall on the side of the political spectrum, that's something that we see, this manipulation of information and communication and how you develop obedient mobs, as Plato puts it in Book 8 of the Republic. And so I, th- I think that, you know, that's a bit of a, we might be wearing ourselves out for a problem that isn't as big as a problem as what we think. We, I'm used to being in a discipline, like, no offense, guys, you're lucky, you're in a discipline that it's really hard to convince people that you don't need to write well. I mean, you, you write, I mean, writing well is always going to be an important thing. There aren't a lot of English programs that are going to be on the chopping block, but humanities, um, you know, philosophy, I, I can count on, it takes, it takes two hands, the number of philosophy programs or religious studies programs that I know that have been canceled just because they're not particularly profitable. And so the, the cell, I think, is is convincing, is showing, hey, there's a serious problem. Hey, this old book, or hey, this old text, or hey, this idea actually applies to this real-life issue for you. So I think that, yes, I agree with you that we're fatigued. I wonder how much of that is self-created, and I wonder if it doesn't give us a Michael Jackson moment where we need to be like the man in the mirror and take a look at ourselves and ask ourselves, what is our pedagogy? How are we teaching? What are we teaching? Is there... Because I see clearly how, uh, I know Randy's been thinking about the Harlem Renaissance a lot. Uh, I know I can see why the Harlem Renaissance is connected to contemporary issues. But if we don't connect the dots properly, students won't see that connection. And they'll wonder, why am I studying this 100-year-old piece? So I think that um, it gives us a space to rethink our pedagogy, our teaching. How do we teach? What do we teach? And, and I, I have yet to encounter a member of a STEM field who says we don't need philosophy. And talking to individuals, a great question to ask people, especially older administrators, is if you could go back and take, your, take some classes, what classes would you take as an undergrad? A lot of responses are I take more philosophy classes, I take more business classes, I take religious studies classes. They know that we need this. We just have to use that energy that we have in being afraid of being ostracized and focus it on reevaluating our pedagogy into making it applicable to students. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's uh, really insightful and I, I agree with you. And as you were talking, I just think in some ways I'm on both sides of that divide as a composition teacher. You're right. There's always going to be a need for teaching writing and teaching writing well, but I'm also one of the uh, members of our faculty who teach literature. And I think literature falls into the category you're talking about where 
many people don't see the value of it, and that becomes an issue. And I really, I really, <clears throat> in fact, this is kind of leading into my next question. I really like this idea that you're putting out there that it's an opportunity for us to examine our pedagogy and say, how are we doing? What are we doing to show the importance of that? I, you know, I've been at this game, if you count graduate school, for for over 20 years. And I always say to myself every fall, usually as we're about to start classes, you know, if I can convince my students that what I'm teaching them is going to change their life in very practical ways, then I've done my job. And that's always been the goal that I've had. And I look and I see promising students and I think, I hope that I've gotten to them. I hope that that is one of the message that they one of the messages that they take away from my class. And and uh, you know, you, you talk about looking at ourselves in the mirror and examining our pedagogy, and making sure that technology is a part of that reexamination. I think is something that we really want to talk about. So my question um, also ties back to what you talked about back in August. Is you talked about several. Let, let, let's talk about the promising things now. Let's talk about the potential now. You talked about several um, initiatives where you did see collaboration. And you said what we need is a well-advertised network um, to work, to, to show and to publicize and to emphasize the work of collaboration. Could you share with our listeners some of those um, collaborations that you have participated in and that you've witnessed? Sure. Um, and again, I think part of it is we have to make sure that we sell ourselves and, and we have to show, we have to constantly be present about what we're doing. And I think that goes back to showing the students that they can have a real substantial life change by reading literature. You know, I can, I can still quote the first 50 lines of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales because I was forced to memorize it, but I see how the Canterbury Tales connect to the human experience. And, and so if we're looking at specifics, there's a ton of things that are going on here at the university, and I won't go into depth here because I may not know the full details, but you have things like uh, the, the statewide digital humanities conferences that have been going on uh, at a state level. And so um, with COVID, things change, of course, but there was a regular digital humanities conference that tried to bring in everything from librarians to artists to philosophers to discuss how digital humanities is present. And if you don't know what digital humanities are, it's as the title suggests, it's the study, it's it's everything from how do we preserve texts digitally to how do we use data to better organize libraries to how do we create AIs uh, or, or algorithms to create uh, paintings. And, and one of the most fascinating papers I remember from the conference that I attended was looking at an AI-generated or an algorithm-generated piece of art that actually sold for about half a million dollars when it first sold. And the, the author of the piece used that to say, what does this tell us about history? Because the, pa- the painting was actually a middle-aged white guy. And as it turns out, the database that they used to construct the, al- the algorithm used to construct the painting was historical. And if you know anything about Western art and who is able to produce Western art. It's traditionally affluent white people. And so it became a question of this piece of art 
digitally created by an algorithm, how that tells us about our own history and our own human experiences. And so, you know, you have the the Digital Humanities Initiative that's present at um, the state and, and the university. I know several faculty members who are here at DSU who are involved with that. Um, you have other things happening at uh, n- national levels. So you have at um, Virginia Tech, there's a humanism and technology uh, initiative that's going on that is um, essentially a almost act, acting like its own college, although that's not correct. But it's 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 a it, you have professors who are designated as connected to humanities and technology that are given research funding to be able to look at how AI relates to um, medical identification, who look at ethics and digital information storage, right? And so that's happening. You have um, other things happening at at a local level. You have events that are going on that are being planned. Um, I think it's still going through, Randy, with with, um, the discussion of the uh, guest speaker and the Harlem Renaissance and other things in February, right? Correct. Um, the Harlem Renaissance event is actually going to be in April, uh. and um, there are going to be other events celebrating Black History Month going on. Um, I just wasn't, it wasn't that I wasn't paying attention to you. I just got on my phone. You were looking at your phone during the... I was looking Randy. at my phone, but for a very specific reason. Um, the DHU, uh, the Digital Humanities Utah Conference is back. Nice. DHU 6 will be at BYU February 25th and 26th, 2022. So we did take a hiatus. In fact, the last one we hosted here at Dixie State, and it was 10 days before we shut it down because of the pandemic. We shut everything down. So we were very fortunate to get that. But those are really great opportunities for people coming together. And the events that you talk about um, involving students are also really really important for us as we continue to implement and use the tools that we have at our disposal to the best of our ability. And if I can jump in with one more thing, you know, again, remember that part of being interdisciplinary is understanding that just because it, it's representative of one discipline doesn't mean that that's the only conversation that's happening. So I'm reminded of the art installation that, the, that our dean brought in this year about the, the victims uh, uh, who... Uh, lost their lives due to the process of trying to get an education, right? So that is an artistic representation, but it also is a cultural representation. It's also a discussion of history and and, uh, Latin American studies and all of those things. And so when you look at a lot of what's going on at our institution, you have arts installations. I would argue that even if you look at, say, theater productions, they are inherently interdisciplinary. There's chemistry and science tied to lighting. There's art and aesthetics all brought into how we represent ourselves. There's human performance, all of those things brought into art discussions. And so I think that, you know, part of, I think the first step is looking at what we do as a whole institution, look at the things that we do, Akuta, uh, et cetera, and say, it's not just the realm of of the College of Arts. It's a realm that the humanities should support. It's a realm that the biologists should support because there are films that deal with medicine and health and well-being and all of those things. So, again, I think that 
how we approach this is understanding that the university life is by its nature, or at least should be by its nature, um, interdisciplinary. And so when I see an art installation, it's not just an art installation, it's a bunch of different disciplines all represented there. So I, I think that you know, we can indicate clearly humanities and technology being intersected at, say, the Digital Humanities Conference. But I think if we're, if we're doing what we should as educators, I'm using DocuTA to talk about philosophy. You're using DocuTA to talk about writing or literature. We're using those events and we're showing, giving students the opportunity to think about them not just as, as events that are for the artsy-fartsy folks, but for us. So I would say that in an ideal situation, the whole university experience is about seeing us as interdisciplinary, complicated, complex entities, humans. So, One, you know, <laughs> going back to being a downer, I was thinking about what you were saying about siloing and, and sometimes our siloing gets in the way of that interdisciplinary. I, I'm thinking about the fact that whenever there's something that goes on campus, I think about, well, whose budget does that come out of? And if somebody who has a big budget won't contribute their, their portion, then it's a small budget activity. And, and so money can sort of rule the conversation. And, you know, wouldn't it be great if we did look at this as interdisciplinary and not that whoever has the most and, and whoever can, can lend chips here and there, but, but that just turns into siloing of, well, we're going to put our money here um, and we're not going to put it towards this. I mean, I've been lucky enough to be part of several programs that have tried to contribute, have tried to contribute to several different events. So, like the honors program, we we'll regularly try to support arts installations. Uh, the work of Jeff Yule, he'll regularly support art installations and art activities. Um, you have um, guest speakers coming from biology that honors has given money to help bring in, and so I think that there are organizations on campus that allow that sort of destruction of the silo, but you're right, you know, he who controls the spice controls the world, that in this case, spice being the budgets and the bigger budgets do get to dictate things. But I would argue in those cases, again, being a one-man band, getting involved with that. Hey, how can I help you put on this event? Hey, how can I help or participate in this? So, you know, the the digital humanities, I, I was able to put together something for a presentation at one of the conferences, right? And so, it's, it's only depressing if we let it be depressing. And I think, again, us being vocal about how can I help you with this or how can I contribute to this, not to, not to just say, here's philosophy, but rather here's an experience that becomes richer the more disciplines we have involved, that it becomes fuller and more complete to the human experience. So, you know, again, thinking of uh, events like uh, rural, it's not rural scholars. Um, there's an organization here on campus that works with translating in rural communities to help provide them dental and, and physical care. Um, that's, a human, that's an interdisciplinary event. You have the medical professionals, you have the language specialists, you have the Spanish majors all working together to try to clearly help people. So I, I'm perhaps I'm being a little bit of ping gloss here and seeing too much of the best possible world, but um, 
I do think that, you know, a willingness to, to engage from the side of humanities, I think would go a long way. Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree. And um, I just wanted to give a little plug for my own um, work that I, I, more plug for my colleagues. Um, as you said, the more disciplines that you get involved, the more the experience for the student is valuable. I have, over the years, revised and changed my approach to English 2010. And I currently am using a lot of my colleagues um, over in the social sciences and um, really allowing students to take a broader look at what they want to do for their big research project. So um, Dr. Lish Harris in criminology comes and talks about a seminal study in criminology that my students then write a report on. And Dr. Matt Smith-Larman comes and talks about um, research methods in sociology. And really, when I um, was re- uh, adopting the course, building the course, I made the, f- the focus on APA-style documentation. And Dr. Christine Olson in psychology has really um, collaborated and really kind of shown me the way when it came to a lot of the things about um, uh, APA. And I just feel as though the engagement level of my students just immediately increased, immediately. And, and wouldn't it be nice if there was, instead of a system that was so rigid that talked about four hours, of, you know, four classes that we're teaching, if we were able to rethink a system so that what you just described became the norm rather than the exception, so that part of my normal responsibility was, if I'm lish, going and, and teaching part of your class, and that was tied to not just an extra that I had to do or tied to the generic beast that is service. <laughs> right, right, right. And actually became something that I could actually block off, and it became part of my routine so that I could work with you regularly to to do. And again, I think this boils down to we're, we are in a system that is archaic. You know, we're, we're, we look at the university system and... It even, I won't even get into grades, but it's a system that is, the siloing is archaic in nature. That if you look at the ancient approaches, it was cross-disciplinary, it was interdisciplinary, it was philosophy being the umbrella that touched on all of the, the elements. And so I would, I would say that, you know, perhaps re, starting at the base and asking, what are we doing? How are we doing it? And is there a way to give us credit, I put a big dummy quotes, credit for our interactions with the support that we give? So in the case of Lish, uh, you know, him coming to your class, besides a letter that you may write him, carries no, no weight. Well, I'm also planning on getting him a Lakers keychain. Ah, well, there you go. That, that, that'll make, knowing that he's a Lakers fan, that'll make a big difference too. But, you know, if we have, imagine a system where that was not an exception, that was not some ambiguous term like service, but that was something that was tied to my normal responsibilities. So I wouldn't have to, I wouldn't have to, to worry about it. So. Well, I, we were going to ask you if you had any enduring questions and notions of responsibility that you see as important in this university. I feel like you kind of 
ask that. Do you have any more enduring questions that you would like to, you know, leave out there? I, I think that there are a ton of enduring questions. I think looking at, I mean, if we're just talking about the survival of the institution, questions of how are we presenting our information? How do we see ourselves? What role does efficiency have in education? Because I would argue that in many cases, efficiency in the current conversation, efficiency trumps authenticity. And students, in my interactions with them, have craved authenticity, not efficiency. Efficiency is how many students and how many classes and how many things can we take care of. Authenticity is, I read this book and it changes my life every semester that I read it. And, and, and sorry to interrupt, but just, you know, I think that's a brilliant insight. And just saying that, doesn't that seem logical that that would be the focus as we've moved further and further into a discipline or into a profession in which outcomes have become so important? Don't authenticity and outcomes just logically go hand in hand? I would, I would hope so, but a, a, a lot of it hinges on how we word. I mean, it's almost like kids' standardization tests. You know, I have two young boys, and you know, a lot of the things that they, a lot of the way that they are taught is to prepare them for the test that they have at the end of the year. You know, for me, it was like the Missouri Mastery Achievement Test. I'm not sure what it is the name of here in Utah, but the teachers would teach to the teach to the test. And I think that if you construct outcomes in such a way so that they are ambiguous and actually remove that that personal authentic authentic element, you're going to end up again with the sort of cog machine sort of thing. That if all I'm trying to do is students have produced a paper. Students will be able to, uh, they will produce some sort of multidisciplinary artifact. That's, that's not what we're aiming at. But if, and that becomes, Randy, a really interesting question, which is how do we measure authenticity? And as a philosopher and as somebody who my area of interest is medieval philosophy and the whole concept of mysticism, I'm okay with space where I don't know. That's not the case for many people. And so you know, can we write outcomes and have outcomes that are more driven toward authentic experiences rather than just artifacts that check boxes? Definitely. Well, I think we're winding down in our time and I appreciate you joining us, John. Um, do you have any closing thoughts? Um, anything you want to leave well, people with? I, I two things. One, thank you for the opportunity uh, to come and talk. I, I enjoy rambling, and I worry that I ramble, but we'll just we'll just say that I didn't. Um, so I appreciate the opportunity, and I think that the thing to remember about all of this is it is so easy to create what Plato calls faction or division in a university setting that. We see faculty and students, or we see faculty and administration, or we see staff and administration. And one of the most eye-opening things that I have had the opportunity to do is interact with administration and realize that the stress, the frustrations, the feelings of inadequacy, the worries, the, the concerns about being good enough that I have are also shared by those upper administration folks. And so all of this discussion about authenticity and connectedness begins in the way that we teach, but also be in, also contains elements of the ways that we interact with people. And 
for Plato, when we have fiction, when we have faction, we've lost the game. It's inevitable that the system is going to fail. But seeing everyone, again, I think this goes back to business versus charity or business versus education, that when it becomes an education, I don't just have the opportunity to educate students. I have the opportunity to educate myself. I have the opportunity to, to engage in, I hate to say the word educated administration, but I get to share and talk about Plato with, with my dean, and that's exciting. And the dean gets to talk to me about communication, and that's exciting. I get to learn how I need to hold my mouth close to the microphone so I don't pop too much, right? <laughs> um, and so that, that the moment it becomes faction, we've lost the conversation. The thinking about ways, again, to unify, to connect, to share our stories, to see the humanness, I think there's the space for growth. So being patient, being kind, being excellent to each other and partying on dudes, as Bill and Ted say. I think that's a starting point. But again, thank you guys for the opportunity to talk. Thanks for being here. We do have a couple of housekeeping uh, announcements to make as we close. This is our second podcast for fall uh, of fall semester 2021. We have two podcasts planned for spring semester 2022. We're moving to the um, DSU radio station, and two great benefits come from that move. One is the studio is very professional and will actually have someone working as our engineer, so it won't be completely DIY as it's been on these first two, though Jim has done a great job with the technology. And the second thing is... What's that? I've done my best. (laughs) And the second thing is um, we will be accessible in more places. Um, as part of our recording over there, our podcast will get pushed out to many of the, the well-known um, podcast places, Spotify and, and Google, uh, Apple Podcasts and, and things like that. So we're, we're really happy um, with the direction that we're going. And if we can have great guests like we've had today um, with John, I think it's going to be headed in a good direction. So remember the rebranding. Remember the new name. Being human the age of technology, the saga of Dixie Tech University, and please keep listening. You said Dixie Tech. I said Dixie Tech. Wow. (laughs) You know, sometimes when you get a word, you've been around for many, many years. I was going to let it fly, and then we just, uh, we'll fix it in editing. No, no. Um, The saga of Utah Tech University, UTU, is what will become on July 1, 2022. So thank you for that correction. This has been the Being Human UTU podcast with Dr. Randy Jasmine and Dr. Jim Hindigas. Please follow and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. From Utah Tech University, this is the Being Human UTU podcast.